Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast refreshed, revitalised and rearing to go. My name's Corey Hazelhurst and laughing derisively is my partner in propaganda, Steve Haynes. Hey, Corey. So I, I wrote this and realised that I've actually been on a holiday to somewhere that isn't my house for the first time in two years. M- meanwhile, I've been having the busiest, what, two weeks of work in, a, in, in over a year, so... <laughs> this is very much a podcast written from, from my point of view, but... I've managed to have a short August break anyway. And the podcast took a bit of a holiday as well. We missed a lot of things over the silly season. There's a a lot to unpack her in, you might say. Um, but MPs returned to Parliament on Monday. What will they be talking about over the next few months? So there's three big things we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the spending review, which is coming up. We're going to talk about the pandemic because that is still very much going on. And we're going to talk about COP26 as well and the climate talks. There are other things going on, but I think that will allow us to talk around a lot of a lot of stuff. And the fact that we're going to start with a spending review first, actually talking about economics. Uh, which we've not done much on the podcast the last couple of years. But the fact we are talking about it, I suppose, Steve, is a bit of a sign that maybe politics is returning to something like what it used to be. Spending reviews, the budget, these are very much the, uh, in in many ways, the bread and butter of uh, political commentary, Um, simply because they're, you can set your cap, you set your watch by them, uh, and you always know you're going to have something to complain about in them, in all, in, in, all, in, in some form, especially when it's the Conservatives doing it. And in all likelihood, it looks like Rishi Sunak is probably going to keep up that um, long-standing tradition of doing a load of stuff, which we, as uh, you know, good little lefties, find absolutely terrible and makes us really, really dislike him and the uh, rest of the Conservative Party. You mean like raising tax? I was more thinking like cutting universal credit, but we'll talk about the tax thing uh, later. Like the, the the two kind of major kind of things I think with immediate kind of like impact um, are uh, coming up are the end of furlough uh, and the I can't I can't remember if it's if it's baked in already um, in terms of like there's, there's a cut off point for it, but there there was an increase in universal credit. Um, and that's set to drop off by, I think it's £20 a week um, mm. currently. So those are in many ways the uh, the, the, the two big ticket uh, items, I think, uh, outside of the tax increase uh, around national insurance, which, as I say, we'll talk about that momentarily. We'll take care of it. Indeed. Sorry, I'm warming up on the puns, listeners. We'll, we'll improve. Go on. The universal credit one is, in many ways, I suspect, the least dangerous one for the Tories um, simply because I don't know no one's ever really cared about cutting benefit be- benefits bef- before even in the current circumstances I'm Ooh. not convinced that, that that's necessarily going to be well I disagree Ooh. it's always exciting when that happens on this podcast I disagree with that as well um, <laughs> as you say there was a temporary extra £20 a week 
that was brought in because of the pandemic to universal credit claimants. I believe it was meant to run out in March. It was extended again, I think, to the end of September. What the government has said so far, and you know, Boris Johnson, Richard Sunak, you have to trust them at their word, don't you? Obviously, 100%. Uh, a good track record of that. Absolutely. And they've said it will definitely not be extended. And actually, I think this, I think the, the rhetoric around benefits, I think, is different. So I think there's two reasons. One of them is actually a third of people on universal credit are already in work. So there are going to be a bit like the Tempe tax thing. There's going to be a lot of examples of people who are working hard who are going to be pushed into poverty with this, who I think will be, I think will, will create a lot of practical problems, lots of misery for them. And I think that will damage the government. I think the other reason, especially when you've got, as you said, a furlough schemes winding down, you're going to have a bit of a rise in unemployment. I don't think that there is that narrative about benefit shysters in the way there maybe was five, 10, 15 years ago. I think the, the impression I get is that people generally think that if you are um, receiving welfare, then you are deserving of it. It's not that you're just laying about on your backside, like watching Jeremy Carlin eating crisps or something. Yeah. So I think actually it, this has the potential to be a massive banana skin to the government. Yeah, and, and, and happy to admit uh, I, I could be wrong on that. It's just, I've not, I feel like if you if you look at a lot of the discourse that I'm seeing online, granted, online is not the real world, but normally it's, it's all you've really got to go on until the government actually does something. Um, what does your Twitter bubble say, Steve? Uh, well, my Twitter bubble doesn't say that much about universal credit. It says an awful lot about the uh, the national, uh, the NI rise. But, uh, and, and that, that that's one of the things that's kind of leading me into, into thinking that if my, my my even slightly lefty kind of like Twitter bubble um, isn't kind of like spending too much time talking about this sort of stuff, it does come up on occasion, but not not massively. There's a big campaign from Unite Community at the moment, actually. So I think uh, that I, I see that in my own Twitter bubble. The nearer you get to the time, I think there'll be a big campaign. I think certainly in Parliament, I think Labour will make a big play for it nationally. And if, they, if Labour does, then... If it is an opposition day debate site, it will lead some media coverage, I imagine. Yeah. Do you reckon they'll go through with it? Ooh. On the basis that Rishi Sunak consistently makes the wrong calls about everything, almost certainly they will go through with it. Yeah, my, my instinct says they would. And again, it depends on the sort of package of measures, doesn't it? Because you've got the very tangible issue of people in poverty who are going to lose £20 a week, which is a lot of money. I think in Birmingham it was like you're taking 150 million pounds out of the Birmingham economy every year. It's a lot of money, um, which the most vulnerable people really need. But I think the politics of it is um, obviously Rishi Sunak's got quite popular by being the person who has been able to throw money left, right, and centre, mostly centre right actually. If in the spending review it ends up being actually there's a period of fiscal retrenchment then that does suffer his his image. And I, I think that could, well, you've seen a government faltering at, at the moment in the polls and this could, I think, go down rather badly for them. I think the, the interesting kind of like dynamic around the uh, universal credit cuts is actually that it's except kind of happening around the same sort of time that furlough ends. Now, obviously, furlough is um, can't go on forever. Um, have you heard of this thing called universal basic income? So it's a really good idea. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, yeah, so furlough in its current form definitely can't go on forever. Um, and I think there's a, like, 
I, I've no idea if this is going to be the case. Like, I'm, I'm not an economic soothsayer or, or anything like that. But there is potentially here some shocks to the system that could happen, um, which are not necessarily going to be positive when it comes to the economy as a result. So obviously, the furlough was brought in to save people's jobs and so that they could, so that businesses could weather through the uh, through the pandemic and come out on the other side with their staff still intact and able to operate as a business. Now. The reality is that there may still be an awful lot of businesses who have been propped up by furlough in this kind of in this situation, and when that ends, we could then still be see that a load of businesses just go, we still can't operate for whatever reason. Um, changing consumer habits, changing uh, COVID regulations, whatever it might be, or just down to people just not being comfortable going out and doing X, Y, Z yet. Maybe the fact that the UK just left its biggest regional market to be able to sell and export things might be a factor, but I realise we might end up talking about Brexit, which um, <laughs> is, is verboten. Uh, but yeah, so you've got that underlying potential risk there of uh, increased unemployment coming about as a, as a result of the end of furlough. Um, I'm not necessarily anticipating it to be like a giant shock to the system, um, with you know millions suddenly being made unemployed, um, but there is a risk here that we could see some some very uh, negative stories from for, from within the economy as a result of that um, as the furlough scheme winds down, and when you do that in conjunction potentially with this universal credit cut, that's when things get potentially interesting in from a political perspective to me if that does go through. Absolutely, and this is something actually we'll probably talk about next week on food shortages. It's not that. You've got it's it's not just one thing. Essentially, you've got two or three different things yeah. that are all happening at the same time. And so the latest figures I could find on the BBC were that in June, 1.9 million people were on furlough. Uh, obviously, that could well be less now. Um, since then, we've had Freedom Day. Remember that freedom that we didn't have and now have. That happened. Um, so the fact, as you say, you've got more businesses who are able to open and so probably fewer people on the furlough scheme. But I think unemployment at the moment is something like 4.85%, something like that. So if even if it's, let's say, a quarter of the figure, you know, if you've got 500,000 people still on furlough, who then, as you say, are sort of entering, um, end up, say, with their jobs at risk when you've got a cut in universal credit. Yeah, absolutely. And what you, and uh, yeah, and when you could put this into the, like the context of all it takes is one national brand to go down as part of it. And it, like the overall numbers necessarily don't even need to be that big in terms of the overall economy. But I'm just trying to think of a, a, what might be it. Like, a, I don't know, well, if, if so the cost went down, you know. Well, for instance, um, Debenhams, I suppose, because I went into Birmingham City Centre, um, local Birmingham, not really obscure <laughs> Birmingham yeah, reference. Quite well-known Birmingham reference. Um, if, yeah, you probably won't have heard of the Birmingham City Centre listeners. It's uh, um, It's got a bull in it and a ring. Yeah. And the Selfridges uh, and some very good independent beer houses, which probably would count as obscure references, but I, I, I digress. And um, for the first time I've been uh, since uh, since the summer, and uh, there's a, a hole where the Debenhams used to be. Yeah, it, it's it's what it's those sorts of things where you know if 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 the wrong business goes under or has to you know lay off workers in in, in some form, then. 
it sets a very negative economic narrative for the for the government to have to respond to. I love the idea that there's a right kind of business to go under. Steve's love of creative destruction falls forth again. All these things I am shocked to hear me roar. All the things they're talking to do to annoy the lefties, like embrace the will of the market. Honestly, <laughs> we, we've trailed it a couple of times. Let's talk about it because we are in recording this in the bunker on Friday. And the story that broke today was that the government is looking to raise national insurance contributions to pay for social care uh, and change the cap that an individual will pay as well. So there's talk of maybe, I think Ben Riley-Smith and the Telegraph have the scoop. So looking at changing the cap an individual will pay. So number 10, talking about maybe setting that at £50,000, which I think Andrew Dilnot, who commissioned the review for Gordon Brown government back in the day, I think reckons that should be the figure. The Treasury is talking about maybe that being 60,000 or 80,000 as a limit that someone will pay for care of their lifetime. Um, they're looking at raising national insurance contributions to pay for it. So uh, again, this is going off the telegraph. Number 10, apparently looking at a 1% rise in national insurance contributions, not income tax, which is important. We'll get to that later, listeners. Uh, number 11 was a 1.25% rise in income tax because the Treasury want more money. The Secretary of State for Health and Social Care, or to give him his proper title, the SAG, is apparently arguing for a 2% increase, but he's apparently denying that, also in private, presumably because the SAG has a big reputation as this tough-talking Thatcherite. And everybody's looking at Boris Johnson and going, you don't have much time left. Surely the SAG can't possibly have leadership anyway. Um, cynical, cynical. The summer break hasn't helped your warped view of humanity been working for it all well yes that probably hasn't helped has it and now the the issue of course with national insurance contributions is it is a little bit regressive and also not everyone pays it in fact it's mostly people who are working who pay it um who are the young people and also people like us so what you've also is that there's an interesting james medway article about this actually so essentially you've got a kind of another uh transference of wealth from the younger generation to the older generation. Yeah. Which of course makes complete sense because it's all the young people at the moment in their old houses and it's all the older people who don't. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. Yeah, I mean, the the issue you've got here is that if you remember way back when to Theresa May's disastrous election where she lost her majority, part of that election was a, a policy to fund social care through basically like inheritance and kind of like selling off houses and all of these different uh, different things which got absolutely mullered by everybody i seem to remember it was called a dementia tax mm, it was indeed called a dementia tax that image is probably very much in the minds of the uh of the current conservative government um as to how they actually might try and square this circle that is funding social care and to be fair to them Many governments have tried to square this circle, circle so far. None have succeeded. But that's partly, as you've kind of hinted, because of the political issues. Yeah. So, again, we probably talked at length about Theresa May's insane or insane decision to roll out a social care policy in the middle of an election campaign, having done no groundwork whatsoever. But um, we talked about Andrew Dillnott earlier. Obviously, New Labour tried to have a plan for social care, there were cross-party talks. The Tories pulled out of that for the 2010 election, and 
called Andy Burnham's plan, Plans a Death Tax. So there is a, a longer, not terribly noble tradition of politicians completely playing politics with the issue of social care rather than sorting the issue out. Yeah. And, and yeah, if, if you were to squint at this policy, it looks remarkably similar to the plan that Theresa May had back in 2017. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Because there are only so many ways to raise revenue of the of the amount needed to be able to actually fund, fund social care properly. So a couple of them that James Medway mentioned in the article, one of them is that you could um, equal the equalise the rate of capital gains tax and income tax, which apparently would raise about ninety billion pounds, I think, over four or five years. Um, also talks about a wealth tax, ge- a general wealth tax. Yeah, I mean that that one keeps on being brought up for every Tom, Dick, and Harry scheme that I guess developed. To- um, but yeah, but yeah, so paying it out of general taxation instead. It, are a couple of ways you could do it. Yeah, absolutely. However, there's one element to this that we haven't actually kind of like dropped into yet which which is interesting for the conservative perspective when it comes to the politics and the optics of this all there was a point in their manifesto of saying we won't raise taxes on ni and income and these sorts of things and yet here they are and vat as well was it vat as well yeah um yeah no, i knew there was a third one i just couldn't remember what it was i was sat there kind of going cgt no um it's horrible on the podcast doesn't you have a rick perry moment it's like, <laughs> what do i do what am I in charge of? Um, uh, but yeah, so from a political sp- perspective, and you can you can start to see this already happening. If you go on Guido Fawkes' um, blog to, today, there was a there's a, a, a piece on there which is just like, oh, oh, the Conservatives are starting to talk about raising taxes. That's that's not good. We should all support the Reform Party, or kind of like we should all like pay attention to what the Reform Party is doing because they're very much going for the um, you know a low tax, high growth kind of approach to the economy, and it doesn't take much for them to shift the balance. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Obviously, I think Paul Staines is talking out of his ass there. I'm not going to use his bloody pseudonym, but yeah, but it just goes to show like the potential risk that there does exist for them to be potentially out outflanked on the right, uh, which we know is a thing that can happen to the Conservatives. We saw it with UKIP. Um, and it could be a thing that happens again. You've not just got the uh, rise in taxes, you say. The other possible manifesto pledge which they're talking about breaking is the triple lock, um, which, as you'll remember, listeners, is um, that the state pension age must rise by either the average earnings or the inflation rate, or 2.5%, whichever is higher. That, that's been in place for a while. I think that was one of George Osborne's things, wasn't it? Because George Osborne made his policies with a kind of vote calculator in mind, shall we say, rather than necessarily on economic sense. Again, I believe it was a manifesto commitment signed off by Boris Johnson uh, to keep the triple lock and, as you say, not increase uh, most headline rates of tax, uh, which was an interesting proposal when also Boris Johnson wanted to invest, level up and do a huge amount of investment in infrastructure with that big brexit dividend that we're going to get yeah i mean again we've kind of mentioned this before but the 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 big issue that the conservatives face is they need to deliver on those promises but they also need to find ways to fund those promises because there's no because the conservative party can't be seen to be borrowing money in that of in that kind of notion uh because otherwise it just opens them up to a to significant attack from from labor um so yeah they've got a massive problem here politically with 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 kind of how they handle these sorts of tax rises i mean the uh you know the national insurance one for for care is going to be the most obvious one of this but it would not shock me if in a year 
you know, within the next year or so, we, we, we saw more kind of discussions around other kind of uh, bits and pieces and, and tax rates maybe going uh, edging up a little bit, which could be massively problematic for the for the current leadership if it annoys the backbenchers. Well, that's the thing. In the short term, I can't see any, the, the Tories have a majority of eighty. Yeah. Any like Boris Johnson could or issue an order to kill all clowns tomorrow it would probably pass uh, the the Tory backbenchers. The issue they've got is it's a pretty fractious party. I mean, we're not really going to talk about what's happened in Afghanistan over the past month in this episode, but it's clear from the parliamentary debate that took place in August. There's a lot of Tory backbenchers not really happy. not happy at all. It's almost like they've remembered that they made Boris Johnson Prime Minister and he now has to do things and they've realised that maybe wasn't a great idea. It's also uh, a cabinet where you've got the MOD obviously unhappy with a foreign office and there's lots of briefing and counter-briefing that's happening there. That on it is again, we, we talk about sort of long term problems building up the, t- the Tory party, and that this is sort of one of them, really. Yeah, we, we are like, I, I can't remember if we've actually explicitly said this on, on the podcast before, but like, I'm increasingly coming to the, to the conclusion that like the thing that does Johnson in is death by a thousand cuts rather than one big scandal or one big element, it's just a, a slow, gradual build-up, and eventually the dam bursts, and that's it. He's done for because it's just one too many things, uh, too, one one too many bits of incompetence, one too many scandals, one too many not firing the right the right people at the right time, and suddenly people just go, "Now this man's not up to the job." Well, it, yeah, it's in a similar way to the fall of Thatcher, where Jeffrey Howe being demoted was on that was the straw that broke the camel's back, which leads to his resignation speech, which leads to the whole. Uh, Hasseltine challenge, you can see a, a, in a similar way that sort of thing happening with Johnson. Yeah. Having very optimistically then foretold the doomed specter of Boris Johnson, a promise with an 80 seat majority and still a, a leading the opinion polls <laughs> consistently for 18 months, let's talk about um, the pandemic because that is still going on. So in the episodes that we recorded before we had our summer break, we talked about the odd social experiment the Johnson government had been on, essentially to get rid of all COVID restrictions whatsoever. It's a weird one, isn't it? Because in one way, the government is vindicated in that we haven't seen a massive increase in, in cases. We, we, there was talk of it being 100,000, 200,000 cases a day. Um, it's remained in the tens of thousands rather than the hundreds of thousands. On the other hand, we are still seeing, I think there were 42,000 cases today. I think there were 200 deaths, which is tragic, um, a couple of days ago. So it is still very much present, even though actually Freedom Day sort of, we joked about it a bit, but sort of came and went. I think a big part of that is that People aren't necessarily abandoned, even though like a lot of the requirements have have gone in terms of like mask mandates and, and things like that. People are still wearing them. Last night, like, like I, I popped into the co-op on the way here, and the the people in there, like a couple of the staff members, were wearing masks still um, when they were out on the floor, um, and uh, a load of the um, the customers were as as as, as, as well when I, when I hop on the bus, like. There's a, there's a load of people that are still wearing masks on, 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 on there. So I think a big part of that is that a lot of people are still being cautious, correctly so. Um, and I think discussions of the Delta variant um, in particular have kind of 
like push that up up the agenda and made people go, okay, cool. Now we need to 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 still take this seriously. Partly the the lack of the lack of hitting those those hundred thousand cases a day or, or whatever it was um, is. Because one, those figures are almost always going to be the worst case scenarios, um, and two, those will be modelled on the notion that everybody just abandons everything, which it hasn't what's happened hasn't been what's happened, and so um, we've ended up with a much more I don't want to use the word reasonable, but like a more manageable number. I think to add to that, there's a few other things on the recessions. One of them is that. The idea of Freedom Day was that it was going to be this big moment where all the restrictions went. Um, that didn't really happen. Whereas actually, in terms of uh, people being able to socialise indoors or socialise in groups or, so or eat out together, um, a lot of that had already come in place earlier. So it wasn't like a big bang. Yeah. It was sort of more like a fizz. A lot of the earlier increase in infection was driven by the socialising during the European Championships. And so... Especially in Scotland, I think it was kind of massively sparked up once Scotland was in the Euros and then when Scotland was knocked out, cases went massively down again. So that was part of it. There's some talk actually that the Delta variant itself, it seems to go through a population very, very, very quickly and then stops. So this happened in India and Italy as well. So India absolutely crippled by the Delta variant and then it um, and then stopped. The other uh, aspect to this is that schools were not open and so a lot of the uh the infections a lot of the, the ping-demic so i suppose one of the most disruptive things yeah you know, have 500,000 people being pinged being told to isolate and um obviously pupils not being in schools mean a lot of that disruption hasn't happened now schools are returning some pupils have come back already some coming back on monday Obviously, there's a few different things that the UK could be doing, couldn't they, to minimise disruption in schools? Absolutely. You could be investing in, uh, you know, uh, making sure there's proper ventilation in classrooms. We're not doing that. You could be mandating masks to be worn by teachers and, and students. We're, we're not doing that. We could be limiting class sizes. Um, we're not doing that. Pretty much everything that we could be doing to mitigate, um, <laughs> mitigate this, uh, we aren't doing because we've got Gavin freaking Williamson as Secretary of State for Education. The assassin face baby. And so, uh, just to add on that, a couple of the things we could be doing, uh, the WHO says you could have a team more distancing, you could have uh, bubbles um, of year groups, which kind of helps contain it. You could vaccinate teenagers as well. And yeah, and that's one of the interesting things that I think has actually come out today is that um, JCVI's turned around and basically said, we aren't recommending that I think it was 12 to 15 year olds get uh, should get the vaccine. Um, although they did it in such a way as basically they're just leaving it up to Chris Whitty. Um, and if Whitty says go, everyone will get it done. So it's really up to him, which is a in many ways a terrifying thought. Not that Chris Whitty doesn't know what he's doing, but it's just that this sort of that sort of medical thing is in terms of the policy implementation is really going to come down to one person. When Chris Whitty says jump, I say, should I wear a mask? From what I've read, it, it, it sounds like they take, they, they've explicitly said they're taking a very precautionary approach yeah. and have said that actually there might be reasons that the government might want to introduce vaccines, say, to, to minimise disruption in schools. Um, I think it was Christina Padgel, who's one of the academics who said it was quite an odd decision. I think she was 
um, I think, arguing in, in favour of it. And it. It does seem to make sense. I think one of the reasons why was there's potentially a side effect of the Pfizer vaccine that causes, I think, heart inflammation. But actually, you might well get that if you had COVID anyway. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, a, a, a massive increase of caution. It's almost a bit like the you've got a flip round now of what we saw in January, February, where the UK was very, very quick to approve vaccines for and, and roll them out. And the EU, uh, that's the lots of European countries' regulators were quite cautious. Now, it seems it's the way around, where the EU countries are vaccinating teenagers and, and the UK is kind of slow walking it. Yeah, I, I think a big part of that is the, you know, based on, you know, the, the number of cases and everything, the, uh, the, 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 the need, quote-unquote, for urgency seems to have kind of, like, uh, disappeared somewhat. Um, whilst, uh, you know, in, in places like France, for instance, um, you know, it required, uh, um, you know, Macron to actually get on, get on TV and say, no, you're going to do this because otherwise you can't go to the pub um, or go out into nightclubs. Well, I think, yeah, you can't get a coffee or cross on it, most yeah. importantly. Yeah. Not uh, to indulge national stereotypes. <laughs> no, not at all. Like, so, so the UK has had, and I think we've said this multiple times, a very successful vaccine rollout. That's one of the reasons why Freedom Day has came and gone and there was no you know major oh my god everything's gone 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 horrifically bad again well no that, that was the, that's been the case for about, about the past six years <laughs> so. uh, but, but but yeah so i think that because things hadn't gone as, as bad as they could have and we've not had seen those worst case scenarios the 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 need for urgency has declined and as such like the scientific advisors have kind of gone well we don't actually know in relation to to children or all these different things yet. So let's actually be a little bit more cautious with, for it. And that I would assume they're kind of almost like making a little bit of a, 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 a gamble that, you know what, even if, you know, the government doesn't go through with this, yeah, it, yes, it causes problems, but one, mortality rates in younger people are incredibly low for, for, for COVID. In comparison to, um, to to other age groups, um, and uh, I think also long longer term side effects have been shown to, to 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 be less as well. So they're kind of going, you know what? They can take it on the chin to a to a degree. Might be the uh, the kind of like the approach there that's being made. That's been very much the approach of the UK government to most of the past eighteen months. Actually. As you say, measures should have been put in place to make sure that the return to schools is as non-disruptive as possible. And that hasn't really happened. And part of the reason is because we've got Gavin Williamson. He was being interviewed, I think, today, saying that it was going to be fine and schools, you know, okay, not every class will be ventilated, but then schools are going to have CO2 monitors. So they'll be able to say how much CO2 is in an area and how if you need to move. And then was asked, did the schools actually have the monitors then and didn't? really answer the question that's a shock uh, speaking of co2 climate change we'll be talking with shaz Rowan about this hello shaz if you're listening about the ipcc report which uh, was released over the summer and is terrifying but in during august a, a huge number of really horrific stories relating to the climate crisis so i think with floods in new york this week horrible floods in germany the absolute untold destruction um massive heat waves as well i think in sicily there was the hottest temperature ever recorded in europe which i think was 48.8 degrees celsius otherwise known as the temperature you put your takeaway on in the oven to keep it warm 
in November, there, and we've talked about this with, with Shaz before, there's a big summit. There's a few things they want to talk about. They want to talk about the new coal. Um, they want to talk about how to develop, how to compensate um, developing countries for um, any measures they're going to take to cut climate change. Obviously, then, as the, not only with the G7 presidency, but hosting a summit as well, I think the plan was that the UK government, spearheaded by Boris Johnson, would knock heads together and, in a triumph of diplomacy, mean that something happened as opposed to a vague commitment to do things they've already said they do already. Of course, there's a big flaw in that plan. Is it Boris Johnson? It is Boris Johnson. So there's a, a little bit of worry that. I was going to say, the, the other potential thing here is that um, if Johnson is as bad as we suspect he might be in kind of making these things happen, like you would in uh, in slightly different circumstances have, have Joe Biden there to kind of pick up the slack and kind of drive things through. Uh, except other foreign policy and decisions currently have meant that Biden isn't the most popular person in terms of international leadership right now. So you have like the two people who are best placed, arguably, due to hosting and organizing and being the president of the United States, who could kind of like run with the ball and push things through here. One's Boris Johnson and one's not very popular at the moment and is kind of on the back foot. So it, it's almost a a worst of both worlds scenario. Well, think, uh, we probably shouldn't talk too much about it, actually. But, the, but you've got so yeah, you've got Boris Johnson. Tragically, is Boris Johnson? Yep. Um, is uh, not really engaged with it. Probably not a really vote winner. Doesn't play well in the red wall. Um, delegated a lot of it to Alok Sharma. The situation in Afghanistan means um, Biden's maybe not got the dip, the, the diplomatic clap that you'd like. Obviously. Uh, the UK has also just cut four billion pounds from its foreign aid budget, so any sort of soft power you've got in that sense is is lessened. Of course, the other big power you want to talk with is China, but you've got UK and Chinese standoff over Hong Kong at the moment. There's sanctions. You've got at the moment talks about the UK government trying to get rid of Chinese companies from investing in nuclear power stations as well. So that's a bit of an issue. Um, but of course. Thankfully, we've got a really good relationship with the EU at the moment because the Northern Ireland Protocol is... Yeah. So, in the 2015 Paris summit, the one that Trump didn't like and Biden did, uh, the French spent two years coordinating diplomacy. And okay, there's been a pandemic and it's been hard, but... Oh dear. I mean, there has like there have been attempts made by the government, as you say. Like, a load of stuff has been... Um... Like uh, designated to, to Alok Sharma to do, um, and Sharma's even been given been given some stick for actually doing his job during the pandemic and actually going to visit people and well, still to the best of the ability that they you can to do it, sticking to to like guidelines and things and, and whatnot. And he at least is trying. <laughs> Don't know about Johnson, but he's trying. Let's be fair and just get this. If anything actually positive does come out of this, it isn't due to Boris Johnson, it's due to Alok Sharma, mm. I reckon. Because he was probably the one that's actually put in the hours and the miles, quite literally, in terms of travelling, to, uh, to to get people kind of like set up and prepared for, for all of this. Yeah. It may not be enough, but... Except, I'm not sure if the phrase, it's all right, lads, Alok Sharma's got this. <laughs> it doesn't bring the, uh, the highest level of uh, confidence, does it? I'm just saying, if he was if he was going to Tesco to get the food for tonight, that's fine. 
if it was a life and death struggle to make sure that life on Earth was still habitable for our grandchildren, this isn't quite where I'd want this to be two months out from that summit. <laughs> so, but, but it's all right, because um, instead, we just need to worry about red wall voters, don't we? Which is why uh, the government's going to bring in a new offence for pet theft, which is fun. Really? It's going to be a specific offence. It's very new Labour, actually. Talk about politics. Yeah. Um, obviously, there's already an offence that is covered by pet theft. Do you want to guess what it is? Theft? Yeah. Speaking of theft, um, if you want to hear more podcasts from us and support us in the work that we do, how could they do that, Steve? Well, you could head over to patreon.com slash not enough champagne where we can pick your pocket for uh, but a few pounds every month and you'll gain access to unique episodes, content and all kinds of fun and games. We're going to probably record one on Afghanistan, um, which um, is either going to be nice and succinct or just be a two-hour argument of me and Steve arguing about liberal intervention. So, you know, <laughs> hang on to your hats for that one. <laughs> Our website is notenofchampagne.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash notenofchampagne. James Cram designed our logo. You can follow him on Twitter at James Cram and Dave Depper composed our theme tune, Bucky Good Times. I'm at Paperback Rioter. I'm at Acoustic Radical. Happy plotting. <laughs>